Welcome to Come and Reason with Christian psychiatrist and author Dr. Tim Jennings. Together we will reason through complex issues to find evidence-based answers that harmonize scripture, science, and our life experiences. I'm your Come and Reason host, Charles Mills. The Christian faith tends to focus on one core event in history, the death of Christ. Everything else revolves around Calvary, but why did Jesus have to die? After all, he's God. He's the creator. Surely there would have been a less painful way to prove a point. Dr. Jennings is here via Skype to dig into this topic. Dr. Jennings, the time is yours. When we ask the question why Jesus had to die, I think the big overview landscape that I don't really get any disagreement from, from any Christians, is that he died as the solution for the problem of sin. Right. If you put it that way, everybody goes, yep, that's right. Okay, he died so we could be saved. He died to bring us eternal life. There's a lot of ways to say the general principle of why he died. He died for our salvation. But then many people ask, but why was that necessary? And that's where there's a lot of argument sometimes, debate, confusion, and even misunderstanding and even misrepresentation of God and the beautiful work of love and healing and salvation that God accomplished via Christ's sacrifice for us, can sometimes be misrepresented to undermine our trust in God. And so I think we want to unpack that question, but let's all agree it was for our salvation. We agree with that, yes? Yes, absolutely. So if we want to understand why was it necessary for our salvation, then we ask the question, this this is what I learned as a doctor, it always starts with the diagnosis. Because if your diagnosis is wrong, then your solution is wrong. So when we think of this question, we ask the question, what was the problem that sin caused that this plan of salvation is designed to fix? And how we answer that question then determines how we interpret and apply the purpose of Christ's death. So if we say, for instance, well, the problem uh, of sin was it broke a rule and it got in trouble with God's legal government and we were on a death row condemned by the legal authorities of heaven for rule breaking and somebody has to be executed and God as the ruling magistrate of heaven is going to use his power to execute the sinner, if that's the problem, then you see the solution will be Jesus comes to earth to be killed by his father so that he can pay our legal penalty. And this is how many people view it. I would suggest that that in fact is not the problem that sin caused. And that is evidenced by anybody who just really looks at what happened there in Eden and looks at God's attitude towards Adam in the aftermath and how God was not against him, but he was for him. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It doesn't say God was so angry and wrathful at the world that Jesus died to assuage his wrath so that he wouldn't kill us. Mm. That's not what the Bible says. And so there is a problem that sin caused that the plan of salvation is designed to fix, but it was never a problem with God. So I ask the question, when Adam sinned, did God get changed? Hmm. Did he? I will have to say no, because God says, I change not. Correct. When Adam sinned, did God's law get changed? Mm, That would not change either, I wouldn't think, no. When Adam sinned, did the condition of humankind get changed? Yeah, I would say there was the change. There it is. And so therefore, no matter how you understand the technical aspects, you can understand the functional application. Whatever Christ is achieving, it will be applied in the species human. It won't be something done to God because he doesn't need changing. He's still perfect. It won't be something done to his law because it doesn't need changing. It's still flawless. It has to be something done to humankind to put humankind back in harmony with God and God's law. That's the key to understanding why Christ had to die. 
And then if you then pull out scripture texts, it'll say things like this, Hebrews 2.14, that by Christ's death, he destroys him, holds the power of death, that is the devil. Wait a second, the power of death, what is that? Well, John 17.3 says that life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, and thou sent. So if eternal life is knowing God, then what would eternal death be? Not knowing God. So Satan's power of death is the power of lies. He's the father of lies. The lies about God that he tells that we believe that actually obstruct our knowing who God really is. We may have a belief in the God concept, but if we believe lies about God, we really don't know him. And we see this in our human relationships. When public figures have all types of lies told about them, and we believe those lies, but we don't really know that person. And so the first thing he came to do was to reveal the truth. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And the truth is, you've heard the statement that power corrupts and and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, Jesus said in John 13, all power has been given unto me. And what did he do with the power? He washed dirty feet, he healed, and then at the crucifixion, when human beings, creatures he's made, are beating him and crucifying him, he still has all power. But does he use his power to stop us or to hurt us? Mm -hmm. Jesus demonstrates that he is safe with absolute power because he is not corrupted by absolute power. And thus, you see in Revelation, every time we see the scene switch to heaven, the angelic beings are saying, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. See, he's worthy to have all power because he's safe with all power. So the first element of what Christ accomplished by his death was to reveal the truth of God's trustworthiness and absolute perfection of character and that he's safe with all power to refute the lies of Satan about God. That's number one. But that's not all. It says that in 2 Timothy 1.10 that Christ Jesus has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Wow. You know, the Bible says we're dead in trespass and sin, doesn't it? Yeah. So we have a condition that in some way is terminal, results in death. If if God doesn't act, if God doesn't intervene, we're dying from this condition. Christ came to destroy death. Well, what does that mean? How did he destroy death? Well, God's law, the law of love, is the protocol or principle upon which life is built. Breaking that law takes us out of harmony with life. It'd be like this. Tie a plastic bag over your head. Break the law of respiration. When you break the law of respiration, you're now a lawbreaker. You're transgressing the law. Mm -hmm. The wages of that is death. You are now out of harmony with the law upon which life is built. God does not and cannot change his law, law of respiration, how he designed and built life to operate in order to meet a person who insists on putting a plastic bag over their head. So the only way to save that person is to take that person and remove the bag and put them back in harmony with the law. Well, the entire species, because of Adam, now has a heart, mind, character that is infected with fear and selfishness. We are out of harmony with the law of love. And the only way for us to be restored is for Christ to come and restore in us his design for life, the law of love. Does that make sense to you? It does. It does. And that's why it says he he was tempted in every way, just like we are yet without sin. And it goes on to say in the scripture, this is a quite interesting, profound statement in Hebrews chapter five, verse eight. It says that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Wait a second. 
Once he was made perfect, he became the source. Wasn't he always perfect? He was always sinless. But Bible perfection is not about a sinless state of being. It is about maturity of character. And God can create sinless beings, but God cannot create character. Character is developed by the choices of the sentient being. So God created sinless Adam and Eve and Lucifer, but their decision-making formed their characters. Adam was capable prior to his fall of choosing loyalty to God, saying no to the temptation. And if he had done that, he would have solidified a perfect character. But instead, he corrupted his character with fear and selfishness. So Christ comes as the second Adam, taking up humanity, damaged by what Adam had done, and carrying it to perfection. Thus, he's tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin, it says in Hebrews 4.15. And it says that we are tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires, James chapter 1. And Christ in Gethsemane, suffered those temptations. His humanity caused overwhelming anguish of temptation for him to act in self-interest. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. That's what his humanity tempted to do. But he said, not my will, but thy will be done. No one can take my life. I will give it freely. And so every time the temptation came to act self-centeredly, he chose to love perfectly. And thus, by the choice of his humanity to do this, he developed a perfect, sinless human character. And this is what he achieved. And why did he have to die? Because at any point along death's approach, as death is coming to take him, and that human nature screaming not to die and wanting to to act to save self, if he does act and use the all power that he has to save himself, well, he didn't actually defeat the carnal nature then. Mm -hmm. The only way to defeat it was to surrender completely and trust to his father and choose to love perfectly. And thus he eliminated that infection in the humanity that he took upon himself. And he rose on the third day in a perfected humanity. And thus he becomes the source of salvation for all who obey him. Dr. Jennings, where did the whipping boy concept come from? Why are we believing this when you make it so clear that that's not what, what's going on? There are two ways to understand law. The common human way, which all human governments do, law is a system of rules that we make up that we enforce by infliction of punishment. And thus, under that model, justice is bringing the rule breaker to trial and then inflicting punishment upon them. That's the human way. But God is the builder of space, time, energy, matter, life, and his laws are the laws upon which reality operates. And in that system of government, justice is always doing what's right and restoring people back to harmony with life. So if you walked into a room and it was a stranger or a loved one, it doesn't really matter, but you walk in and as you open the door, a person has a rope tied around their neck and they're tipping a chair out from under their feet and they begin to dangle by that rope. They are now breaking the law of respiration. They're a lawbreaker. What does justice require of you? To punish them? Or does justice require that you deliver and save them? And that's Bible justice. God is always working to deliver the oppressed, to set free the captives, to heal up the brokenhearted, to take away the the pain and suffering of sin. So the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But because we've rejected design law from our creator, and we don't really worship the creator, we worship a dictator who runs his universe like Caesar runs Rome, and his law works like that, then we teach that God, in order to be just, must punish sin. 
And Jesus came not to take away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said. No, he came to take our punishment and be punished by his Father. That's where the whipping boy mentality comes from. It really comes from a misunderstanding of God's law. There's another aspect of why Christ had to die, and that's 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Adam was created in the image of God, and he was to be an image bearer of the divine. Satan did not like that, and Satan not only tempted Adam because he hated God, but he wanted to replace the image of God and put Satan's image where God should be so that human beings represent Satan in a satanic character rather than God. Christ coming as man perfectly restored the image of God in the humanity that he assumed, and now he sits as humanity's representative in the councils of heaven on the throne of God, elevating the human species back into the position God always intended it to be. So there's a third reason. And then ultimately in Colossians, it says that all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. And so angelic beings like Gabriel, who always maintain their loyalty, had questions that that they didn't see the answers to until Christ's victory at the cross. So Christ also came to solidify the loyal beings in their loyalty, and that was another purpose of his mission. And that's why he said that I be lifted up will draw all unto me, and the prince of this world be driven out. And that's what he was doing. Oh, what a pleasure it is to know this and to realize that we can worship that God, the God you talked about second. Not that whipping boy God, but that wonderful, saving, love-filled being that is our Savior. What a beautiful lesson, Dr. Jennings. Thank you so much for sharing that with us today. Comeandreason.com is the website. And listener, I invite you to visit there often. Dr. Jennings, again, thank you so much. Always happy to do it, Charles. And until next time, this is Charles Mills, along with Dr. Tim Jennings, wishing you God's presence. God's presence, the real God's presence in your life. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for spending time with us today. To continue the journey, I urge you to visit comeandreason.com. Here you'll find many excellent resources to help you gain a deeper understanding of the God we all love and serve. That's at comeandreason.com. This is Charles Mills, along with Dr. Tim Jennings, inviting you to join us the next time we come and reason together. <music>